This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yeah. All right. Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with my friend, Charlie Ellis, a.k.a. Charlie Lionheart, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Axe Wax. That's right, Axe Wax. It's an all-natural, food-safe wax for your axe or your hammer or your knives or your boots or, believe it or not, your hair. That's right. Somebody told me that they were running late for work Stuck their finger in a puck of Axe Wax, slapped on their dome, rubbed it through their hair, bingo, bango, bongo, off to work, smells great, no problem. I don't know if that's what Axe Wax intended it for, but all natural food safe, I'm with you. If you go to axewax.us and put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you get 10% off. How good is that? And you guys have been doing great. I can't believe it. You've been so great. The bandsaw is on its way, ladies and germs. That's right. We made enough money. You sold. I sold enough pucks. You guys did great. So go to axewax.us. Go buy some more. Get a couple pucks. 10% off with Full Blast 10. And without further ado, Charlie Ellis is a fascinating young man that I was privileged enough to meet a few years ago. His work is... There is such a humanity to his work. He does, besides doing beautiful uh, forged integral Damascus chef knives for eating tools and, and himself, he also does friction folders and duk-duks. We're going to talk about that. Charlie, how are you? I'm doing, I'm doing great. Thanks, thanks again for having me on here. I'm excited to have a nice little conversation with you today. You are the man. Dude, listen, I t- when we met, the first time we met, I will never forget my first impression of you. We were at the Blade Show. No, we had, you and I, we had, we were involved in that, uh, we were involved in that breakfast with Jeremy Spake and all those guys the year before. But the year before the last Blade Show, I was in the pit and I was with Adam and, J- and uh, Jackie. Adam and Jackie of Built Sharp. I was with Jeremy Spake, and we're standing around. I just met everybody. We were just talking, and in walks this big blonde, like a you were like you were like a blonde anime character, <laughs> walking with this giant um, folding samurai sword. <laughs> yeah. And you came over to us, and Spake said something to you, and you just like. And it whipped out, and it was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, the the Higo Katana that was <laughs> that was a lot of fun making that. It was, how long was it? Uh, I think the blade was two foot, so of course the handle's got to be a little bit longer than that. So it was a little over four foot overall. And it and it folds so the the blade folded into the handle, and then Higo's we're gonna get into is like a, is. The Japanese version, the Japanese name for, I guess, what you'd call a friction folder, right? Yeah, it's a Japanese friction folder, just a basic. Usually they have like a brass handle that's just folded sheet metal, and the the rivet for the pivot is just the pressure of that is what leaves it open or closed, and the the lever up on the back of the spine is how you open the blade, and having your hand on that keeps it from keeps it from moving when you're using it 
that the, those friction folders are such a fun way of getting into making folding knives because they're the least amount of mechanics involved. But yeah. the, the Higo, but your Higo Katana had a spring-loaded catch that when you flipped it up, that was the thing. I mean, here here comes tall Charlie Lionheart, and he whips out the the blade, whips the blade out, and then all of a sudden there's this spring latch that catches the lever so it doesn't obviously cut your hands off yeah yeah like i had the idea i wanted to i just like wanted to make a giant higo no kami katana i was like but i gotta have some way to lock it because like that's gonna be a a finger chopper if like there's not an actual lock on it uh so yeah there was like a collar around the handle the um the handle i forged out a like quarter by four or something i folded that up into a U. Uh, so then there was like two channels I milled into the handle under the collar that had little compression springs. So that would slide back and then on the top of it where the lever came down, um, that, that little spring lever would hold the collar back, but then the lever this is super complicated to try and explain. No, I understand. <laughs> I hope... I, listen, listen. I, hope... I I know exactly. Which I I watched. If you go, guys, if you go to see Charlie's uh, Instagram, if you look a little bit farther back, there's video of uh, there's video of the, how he opens it and closes it. So no, it makes I I know where you're going. Uh yeah, which yeah, well I'll post the uh, I'll repost it Friday so people can look at it and be like, what the heck is he talking about? Uh, but yeah, like the, there's a little spring, leaf spring holding their collar back and the, the lever, when the lever pushes that down, the, uh, the collar is able to slide up and because of the taper of the lever on the back of the blade, it locks it up and it's tight and it's not going to fold in on you and chop your fingers off. Now, when I first met you, I was fumfering around with fixed knives. I had done one. I bought a book on how to do a joint, a slip joint folders because I love slip joint folders. And mm -hmm. in New York, slip joint folders are the only things that are not going to let you go into the tombs. I don't know if you know <laughs> this about. I mean, New yeah. York and New York, New York City at least. I grew up in New York City, and I we. My, my family was very close with the police uh, department, and, and then they would always, I would always be told, the only thing that will not get you in trouble are slip joint folders. So I had to, he's like, I said, what's this, when I was a kid, what's a slip joint folder? That's where you, like a, like a Swiss Army knife where you have a little thumbnail pick that you can open the thing with. So I'd always known about Swiss Army knives, and I've always thought, all right, well, I'm not going to get in trouble for that. And then, you, you know, now, you know, everyone's got, you know, assisted, you know, when I talk to the New York police, they tell me all the they they refer to um, assisted knives, uh, open assisted opening knives. Is that what I call? Yeah, they're referred to in, in 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 if you're in New York City with one of those, they're referred to as job security because <laughs> it's a fast fast way to like you know you know get your quota up to the point where there was a number of years a couple of years ago where the you know when people were using um, those folding razor blade carpet knives, people were, you know, carpenters and, you know, people especially who were working in, you know, professional uh, carpet guys, 
they were getting picked up in the subways because you could see the clip was in their pocket and then the police would say, what do you got there? And then they'd get pinched and then they had to change a lot of rules because all these guys who were going to work for construction were getting pinched for, for this stuff. So yeah. I'm telling you. So how <laughs> did you learn how to do all that? I mean, it, it was, I remember when I saw it, like I said, it was fumfering around with a, with a slip joint thing. And it was like such a production, just a slip joint. How did you figure out how to do all that mechanism? I uh, just thought about it a lot and kept doing drawings and thinking about it and scrolling through the um, McMaster car app to see what they had for springs or, you know, what, what little springs and doodads and things I could maybe use to make it work. But, I mean, where did you learn how to be this creative? I mean, where did you learn how to figure this stuff out? I'll tell you why. I, back in the day, I was making, back in the day when I was in college, I was I was plasma cutting out batarangs. Oh, yeah. And then I was pa- plasma cutting out batarangs, and I was doing the old Adam West style batarang. You know, they're different batarangs. There's the uh-huh. Adam West style batarang, and then there's the uh, Batman the Animated Series one, which has like a switchblade opening. You know, he he pulls it out of his utility belt, he presses a button, and, it's, and it slips open. So I actually cut one and two, and then I made it like a, it was, there was no mechanism, it was just a flopper. And mm-hmm. I thought, how can I make this thing spring? And I took a rat trap apart, oh, and I nice. put the spring of a rat trap. Boy, go try to weld a rat trap spring onto something. That <laughs> sure surely doesn't work. So it, I was just like, forget all of this stuff. But when I look at your stuff, I'm thinking to myself, how does you, how do you figure how do you figure the mechanics of that though? Yeah, it's just like, yeah, just thinking about it a lot, and then finally, like being confident enough to try it because like making that sword, like I already had. 30 or 40 hours in it before it even worked just getting everything forged and fit together and everything it's like man i hope this works because if that doesn't work like it's it's a week's a week's wages like down the drain you know do you still have it no i i sold it uh shortly after blade show that year a guy from from guam bought it somebody from guam bought it yeah Oh man, that is the baddest dude in Guam. Yeah. Come on, come on, he gotta. That, had, was he from? Did did you send it to Guam or did you like sell it in the United States and they just took it away from took it away? Uh, no, I shipped it to Guam, which, like, yeah, that was weird because it's a, a U.S. territory. So like, when I went to the post office to ship it, I ended up. Um, like I wanted to put insurance on it. I think I ended up doing registered mail because that ended up being a little bit cheaper. Yeah. But it was like the the postmaster like kept going back and forth between like, no, you don't need to fill out a customs form. Well, wait, if you send it this way, you do need to fill out a customs form. It's like, what the heck? Like, oh. whatever, just as long as it gets there. But they got there fine. How did, what did the, was the customer like? I mean, th- th- there's not a whole, I mean, are there anybody else, did anyone else have done uh, like a folding katana? Is that even a thing? Have you ever <laughs> I seen those before? I don't think so. That's the only I've seen. Uh, but yeah, he's, I've, I talked to him every once in a while. He's still, he, he talked to me a little while ago. He said he's still got it. It's just, he's kept it pristine and he loves that thing. So, oh, I just can't, cool. I just, all I could think of is that was mine. 
in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, he's going to just, like, bring it out at parties. Or he's going to, you know, who knows what he's going to bring it out at. And he's just going to, like, something's going to happen. Some, you know, his grandpa, some kid's going to, you know, flip it open. And then the spring is going to fall out or something like that. And he's going to call you up and say, hey, man, how do you fix this thing? I'm I, This thing is, I broke it. And I, all I could think of was, it's too much mechanism yeah. to fix. So when you were younger... Were you doing a lot of stuff like this? Were you doing a lot of mechanical stuff? I know you do a lot with mills. Were you a, a machinist or anything? No. Uh, I spent a lot of time playing with Legos, so. Yeah, that's a, uh, big, that's a big one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, every time someone on the show is like, yeah, I, I grew up playing with Legos. It's like, yes, Team Lego. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, like, I have an older brother who's four and a half years older than me, so, uh, like, I was playing with them before I was really old enough to be playing with them. Uh, and yeah, like my mom was telling me, like when I was, I don't know, f four or five or something, like I had, I like found the instructions to something. I just like totally by myself, just like put something together. And they're like, did you do that? It's like, yeah. It's like, man. That's nice. That's an I, early, that's the early introduction to like, uh, you know, an adrenaline boost. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that's weird about Lego, and I wanted to talk about this with a, a lot of the a lot of the people who, ever, you know, you're right. There's a lot of. I, I'm speaking of which, if I uh, dies in every film, Honor Kaglar just did this Lego handled uh, axe a hat, tomahawk that looks dynamite. Oh yeah, I, I gotta watch that video. That looked he, cool. He's a, it's such a clever and smart and beautiful object, and he did such a great job. And he's also he all fired up because he knows he's going to get a lot of people yelling at him. <laughs> so, some, so one point he said, so if you go to Dies in Every Film, we had him on a couple episodes ago, and um, he was he was saying, oh, people love to you know people love to say stuff, and you know, I guess one guy was just like, no Viking would ever have a Lego handled axe handle, whatever. But one of the things about Lego, that there, there was a huge change. And I remember when I was younger, when I was younger, my parents bought me Lego. And you would just get Lego. It was boxes of different parts. Mm -hmm. There was no instructions on how to do things. There was no instructions on what you were to do. But there was also, it wasn't, they weren't doing that. You know, now you can get like a specific, you know, the... The, the the star some Star Wars plane and then every single part is accounted for and it shows you exactly what to do mm -hmm. to make that thing and then you lose I always thought that you lose a degree of the creativity of what Lego was intended to be which wasn't you know, now it's almost more like it's about a puzzle and then the little figure you get to once you're finished with the puzzle you can play with the puzzle as a toy as opposed to being able to be creative with the parts themselves yeah yeah like people who just like buy the sets and then build the set and leave it as is like man that's so like boring like i would i would always you know i'd get the new set the star wars whatever little set or something and i'd build it and then you know i'd play with it a little while but then i'd be like taking it apart and seeing what i could build with the same pieces and I do that for a while, and then eventually I just like have that all those pieces join the giant bucket of Legos, and like you're like, oh, the, I got these new little pieces that I could use this way to make this something or other, and that was that was the most fun to me was just like 
having all those little pieces and thinking how I could, different ways I could use them to make different things. I remember when I was in first grade, I had, this is a deep memory I have that we had Lego in the classroom and we had just, I think Empire Strikes Back had just come out. I think so. I know that 77 was when Star Wars came out and I wouldn't have been in first grade. I don't think it, three or four. Empire Strikes Back comes out first. I think that I'm in first grade. And 1981, does that sound right? I don't know. And all of a sudden, we figured out how to use the kind of like the ramp part. There was like a little ramp. We were we would figure out as like, you know, little kids how to make something that looked like the snow speeders. <laughs> and it was always, it got to the point where we were all, the whole classroom of boys, we were all grabbing all those particular parts because we wanted to make our version as like a, a group. We'd all come to the conclusion that this is the coolest looking snow speeder and it was like it didn't have a guy it didn't have anything but it was like when you saw it everyone was just like okay that's how you make a snow speeder <laughs> and it was this more of a creative adventure and but and i think that lego changed the way that they you know envisioned it all i'm not 100 percent sure that they believe that there should be a right or wrong reasoning to uh how you're supposed to use lego and i think that that was a huge I think that they probably made a lot of money by, you know, they team up with the movies and they make, you can, you can buy all the different, you know, machines and the, you know, parts and the toys and stuff. But I, th I feel like they lost out in terms of there was, I don't think the kids are as creative as they are, you know? Mm -hmm. I wonder about that. It, because the, most of the people I talk to, you know, Lego is their, their way of expressing themselves. And just think that, you know, buying the, you know, TIE fighter kit might not have been it might have been a good way to figure out how to follow instructions but it might not have been a good way to be creative yeah yeah which like they have a lot of sets now that are like creator sets where like they have instructions for like three different things that you can build with the same pieces yeah and they'll have just like that's more geared to like hey be creative and like build something cool and they throw in a little a couple extra pieces and stuff you know I don't know, man. So. I, I, it's it, to me. To me, it's it's like it's it. It doesn't seem like it's as fun. It just doesn't seem like it's as fun. But you know, who the what is this Lego talk? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. So when you're a kid, what what kind of got you into kind of building things? Did you do? Did you do? What did you do when you were a kid? I played with Legos. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, what, but yeah, to a certain point, you're not playing with Legos when you're 16. And you uh, I, 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 I was. You were. <laughs> What were you making at 16 with Legos? Uh, all kinds of things. Which they had the, um, like when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, they came out with like these kind of action figure Technic Legos that were all like, they all were like different elements. Like there was like the fire, the fire guy and the earth guy and the, the water lady and stuff. So I was like getting big into those, and again, they were all just like different pieces, like arms and lots of ball joints and gears and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I was playing with those a lot, and I pretty much was playing with Legos a lot until like I was able to like make stuff with steel and wood and 
like real materials to where like I'm not limited to these ball joints and whatever these pieces are like I can make whatever I want you know I can adjust it and do anything I want to do I'm not limited by whatever pieces I have I can just you know cut it to shape or whatever what what was the first kind of like that first beginning stages of being able to make that leap because it is a liberating thing to going from like this very set rules in regards to how you put Legos together to being able to kind of whittle wood or, or make steel or, you know, make, you know, learn how to weld and drill holes and stuff. What was that? What was that transition? You think? Yeah. Um, I mean, my dad was a, a carpenter, a construction worker. So, you know, he had all the, the tools and stuff and he gave me for my birthday one year, he gave me a Dremel tool. I think, I don't know, maybe I was 13 or 14. So I would be like making like, uh, like swords and stuff and knives out of wood to fight, uh, my friend. We would go out and beat each other up and get all bruised up and break, break what we were making and then have to make more, more wooden swords. That was the move. Yeah. I grew up in the, uh, I don't know if you had this when you were growing up, but there on Saturday afternoons there was they play Chinese uh, karate movies <laughs> with the he- overdubbed. I think it was called Saturday Afternoon Drive-In or something like that. And they'd always play. And then sometimes they'd have like the good Bruce Lee ones, but the real good ones were like the really weird ones, like like totally deranged. And then we would sit around and watch these, you know, Saturday Afternoon Drive-In uh, karate movies. And then we'd you know unscrew the unscrew the pole to the broom broomstick and crack each other over the head with the broomsticks you know yeah unbelievable uh, yeah so i mean yeah just like doing stuff in wood and around that time lord of the rings was coming out and then i was like oh man like i want to like i want to make stuff for real i want to make real swords and armor and I, that's what I want to do. So I was always like drawing, drawing stuff and making my own, my own worlds and like what different races, what their armor would be or what their weapons would be and stuff. And it was just really inspired by what Tolkien did with this whole world building and then how the movies, like they took that and ran with it and created everything, you know. It's such a it's such an incredible I think that there's a lot of people who really have taken you know you you when you create these worlds and you create these like not only worlds but rules and the way they are I never read the books I know most of the people who listen to this podcast have and they're probably like what are you talking about you haven't read it and I watched one of the movies and I was like yo three hours in the movie theater is too much for me sorry everybody <laughs> but yeah. I'm fascinated by how they were able to the people people are able to like they buy into these worlds and they're they uh, you know uh, adhere to uh, I I find it to be fascinating. I'm a I, you know growing up I was a comic book kid, so I love that if the better you're able to kind of flesh out these stories, the more interesting they are. Yeah. So when did you think you, when did what was the first real knife you made? Uh. Well, okay, so let's go to 
2004, I was, me and my family were up in Maine for the summer, and I wanted to, like, I was like, man, I want to, like, this is what I want to do. I want to learn how to be a, a blacksmith and make stuff out of metal. So we're up, up there for vacation, uh, which I grew up in Florida, so going up to Maine was, was a heck of a, a road trip. Big difference. Yeah. Uh, which, like, my parents were both, they were from Massachusetts, and my mom would would always spend her summers up in Maine, so she was, like, that was her, like, her favorite spot in the world. Uh, so we would try to get up there every summer when I was, when I was growing up. But anyways, that year, like, we were up there, and my mom was looking through the local paper, and there was, uh, like, an old mill having, like, a heritage day, and they said that there was a blacksmith there available for, for, um, lessons. So she, like, called and, like, set up to where I could go and try it out. Do you remember, it was, it wasn't Sturbridge Village, was it? No, it was, um, Scribner's Mill. There's a, um, a wood mill, I think. I don't, Hmm. I don't remember. It's been, it's it's been a while. Because Uh, I would warn you against taking lessons from the Sturbridge Village blacksmith. Oh, yeah. That guy's a total fraud. (laughs) I got dragged into there and I was just like, you got to get me out of this place. This dude is just taking the steel, putting the fire, and then while everyone's looking, he pulls it out and looks at it like he's looking and puts his thumb up and he's just putting it in and out, everyone walking away, and he's just like pretending like he knows what he's doing. He don't know any, anything. <laughs> so I get worried about those guys. So, all right, yeah. I'm sorry for interrupting. So you, oh, you, no, got, you got a lesson? Yeah, so I went there and uh, spent, I don't know, two or three hours making a little S-hook and a couple little nails and a, a fire poker. I was like, oh man, this is like, this is really cool. And, you know, cranking the, the coal forge and getting the metal hot and beating on it and not knowing what the heck I'm doing, but I'm, I'm dirty and sweaty and I, I made something. So yeah, like while we were there, there was a couple guys hanging out, uh, you know, seeing what was going on. One of them had a New England School of Metalwork shirt on. And just found out about them about that school. It's like, oh, cool! Like, that's cool. So, like, I looked okay. into that later on. Found out about them. So then I ended up the next year. Uh, we went up there, and like all year, I was like doing yard work and stuff, saving up money, and I took a class doing straps and hinges for a week up there at the New England School of Metalwork. Uh, so yeah, that was like, that was crazy. Cause like, I'm just a little scrawny little 15 year old kid. And like everyone else is like 45, 50, 60 years old. <laughs> yeah. But so. they must've thought, but the, but the thing is, is like when you get, when you get the young guys in, you always like look to them being like, you know, this kid knows what's up. I, they're more, probably more jealous that you at your young age figured out that let me take a class here. I would have that's what I would have felt like. <laughs> yeah. I'm too old to do this. He's he's got the right idea. So 
Yeah, that was so that was that was great having that much like that much time forging and stuff. I ended up I didn't ever make a a complete pair of hinges cuz it was like a intermediate class and I wasn't really intermediate, so I was like trailing behind the whole time, but I was I was able to, you know, do learn everything and do one of one of everything but I never did do a, a pair of hinges all the different like all the different kinds they were doing that week eight hinges and little mustache ones and stuff so that experience must have just been like all right this is what I want to do but you're living in Florida so in the summer times, you're, what are you doing after the classes at the center for, I mean, the, the New England School of Metalwork? Are you like figuring out how I can do, you do, do this at your home? Yeah, like I was wanting to get my own setup, but like I didn't have the money or the resources, which it was funny, like living in Florida, like I would tell people that I want to be a blacksmith and they'd all be like, oh, you want to shoe horses? It's like, yeah. no, I want to, I want to make like, swords and armor and stuff uh which it's funny because like i didn't realize there were there was any blacksmiths down there and like steve Swartzer was like two hours away from me <laughs> Wow! but like i didn't know him until you know a few years ago hmm. uh there's a lot there's a lot of farriers there's a lot of blacksmiths and farriers down in florida because there's a lot of horses yeah yeah like uh hmm. jonathan porter's down there and you yep. Uh, I was working before I went full time a couple years ago. I spent five years working for another blacksmith uh, up here in North Carolina, which he was down in Florida too uh, before he moved up here. Uh, but he was lower down, uh, like the Palm Coast area. So, what do you? What was the first kind of knives you went to? What were the first knives you were making? Right, so first knife. Um, so yeah, that 2005, that year, we actually we actually moved up to Maine for uh, nine months. We stayed with uh, a family that we met up there that was uh, a pastor and his six kids and wife uh, that we got along with really well, and we ended up moving up there they had a big he had a giant like three-story house with uh, a two-story three-car garage and then uh, he was on his property he was wanting to build a house for his mother-in-law but because of like the zoning or whatever they weren't able to do it anywhere except for on the other side of the three-car garage <laughs> so it's just okay. like this massive massive building up on a hill uh but yeah like we were visiting him the year before and he was saying how he wanted to to turn the second story of that garage into like a a theater for plays and stuff because he would do uh shakespeare plays with homeschool kids as like homeschool activity stuff and we're like, yeah, that'd be cool to go up there and like help him finish out this theater and have that experience of living up in Maine for for a while. Uh, 
so yeah, like we would, we were up there through the winter, the summer, and then through the winter. And there was in Augusta, Maine, there was like a little uh, historical fort. And there was right. a blacksmith there that I took a couple little classes with. And that's when I forged my first knife that wasn't a knife. I took a, a file and just like beat it flat and didn't even have a point to it. And I think, I think I knew about hardening and tempering there because I think I remember quenching it and I remember leaving it on top of the wood stove to get the colors through it. Um, but I never did put a handle on it. Uh, but then, so then when we were finished up there in the springtime, we ended up, we didn't want to go back to Florida because we were done there. The heat and everything was yeah. like, let's, let's not go back. Let's go somewhere else. So we ended up moving here to North Carolina. Huh. Uh, so that was in 06. We moved here. You're in Asheville, right? Yeah, Asheville area. It's a it's a huge it's a huge artist community. Yeah, in Asheville. I have a, actually a friend of mine who's an extraordinary painter moved down to Asheville, and he was sending me messages saying, "This is like an artist mecca." I would imagine that you had a lot of you know extra you know maybe new different influences as opposed to Florida. Yeah, yeah. It was it was like we would stay here. We would come up here to run away from the hurricanes when we had to evacuate, we had friends in the area and that's how we ended up moving up here. Cause they were like, Hey, my mother has this house for rent. You guys should come here and stay there. So like, okay. <laughs> like we didn't even, yeah. I don't even know if they sent like pictures or anything, but we just like showed up and rented it. And my mom's still living in that place now. Uh, 15 years later or whatever it is uh but yeah like when we moved here i searched like i went to my friend's house and went on their computer and just like searched uh blacksmithing in the area and the kane and sons blacksmith depot popped up sure and that's uh like the next town over it's like oh cool so me and my dad took a trip out there just to like see him and see what was what was happening in the area and at that time they were still doing like monthly demos huh uh monthly demos blacksmithing and stuff so i would say that kane and sons aka the blacksmith's depot is one of the great resources for um getting yourself started in terms of getting equipment and tongs and stuff like that they give a lot of really it's a great way to start in like the fact that it was so close to you, I'm sure that was just like, you couldn't get yourself out of there. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was really cool seeing that place. Cause it's like, I guess, what are they? The world's largest supplier of blacksmithing tools. I mean, it's like the number, I mean, if, if you're not buying something from somebody that somebody made, they're probably, I mean, Amy pay does a pretty good job, but I don't think it's as big. The pay tools isn't as, I don't think it's as big as, uh, uh, Kane and Sons. I think Kane and Sons is probably the biggest strictly blacksmithing and, and farrier stuff. I think the two, those two are the pretty much the top two. Yeah. I might be wrong, but like, 
when you, when you get to, you're gonna need a pair you need a pile of tongs and you don't you, know, you just want to just like get them quick and easy yeah cane and sons has always been the that's always been the fast way to do it. i mean some of it's not good <laughs> i've gotten drifts that are like not what i wanted but at the same time it's like you know it is for people on a budget it's a pretty good resource yeah for sure uh so yeah just like going there and seeing that place like oh man this is this is great so the next like we got the info for their their meetings and stuff and went to the next one and uh david burnett was doing a demo then he was the the teacher at haywood community college they had a blacksmithing program there uh so he was making a little trivet he was like using a fly press to um to offset I don't know, it was like eighth by three quarter or something hmm. stock to where he could like weave it together to make the trivet. And then he was bending the outer frame and forge welding it together. It's like, oh man, this is really, that's cool. Like there's a, a college here that has blacksmithing. So I looked into that and I was still in high school at that time. So um, I was able to, to attend for free with, because uh, I, well, I was homeschooled all through uh, middle school and high school. Uh, so yeah, I was able to dual enroll, which is just like, basically you can take free college classes if you're in high school. Huh. Um, so I was able to take that blacksmithing, pro, uh, blacksmithing class for free for like a year and a half. Oh my God everyone pulling your hair out that is that's amazing yeah what a what a fortunate what a fortunate opportunity yeah so and yeah like the the teacher there david burnett he used to um he used to teach belt bandsaw blade welding for like big industrial wood mills because in that area there's a, a really big that's a really big um industry so I can only imagine at, you know, high school age being able to take the classes that you want, which is like unheard of, really. Like you want to be a blacksmith and all of a sudden you're getting free blacksmithing classes at a college level. You're getting propelled. You're getting propelled into the direction you want to be. And this is like, I can't think of anything more exciting. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. Which like... At the time, like, I didn't even have my driver's license, so my, the, the college was, like, 30 minutes from our house, and my dad would bring me once a week, and, uh, like, he was wanting to take classes, too, but because we had just recently moved there with, like, the paperwork and stuff, he was still considered uh, out-of-state tuition because right. of how the college is just weird, you know? And it sure. would have it would have cost him like six hundred bucks or something or something mm. some I, I don't remember what it was but it was really expensive so like oh, I'll just have to hang out and watch <laughs> watch oh, you bureaucracy so, at its finest yeah but yeah just the fact that like he did that for me really means a lot to me of course yeah. I mean you you kidding me the taking you to I mean that is the role of the parent though I mean the the, the good ones they take you where you know how the best way that they can you know 
I always, what I refer to it as is being able to kind of give your child everything that is going to propel them and be successful when they're on their own. You know, you want to, you know, it's, it's, it is, I'm sure he had a lot of fond memories watching you, uh, you know, getting all fired up to get into the class. I'm probably, well, I don't know, he probably wanted to get the newspaper and a donut and, you know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what, what were the things you were making there in the class? Yeah. So like there was, like he would have us make certain stuff just to like do the projects, which I don't, it was, oh, we made another, we made like a coal for Drake and, oh man, I don't even remember what else we made. It was just, you know, simple, real simple Basic stuff. stuff. Yeah. And then like once we got through all those projects, the last few weeks would be just like, you know, do whatever you want, have fun. So, I think, I think I took a semester or two before I was like, okay, I want to, like, make a knife. Which, at that time, they started doing ABS classes there. Like, they formed a partnership with the ABS. So, I never did take a sanctioned ABS class, but, like, I was around it a lot because they were doing it and i was like hey i'm like i'm still here taking my normal class like hanging out with master bladesmiths and stuff uh so there was like some spare like 1075 laying around this i was like hey can i can i use this little piece here it's like yeah sure so i forged like a this little full tang thing that i wrapped i stitched up some leather for the handle and It'd be brute to forge at the very finest. Like I forged, I forged like a bevel to it, kind of. But uh, yeah, I just like put an edge on it and didn't do any like grinding of the bevels or anything. Do you think that? Do you think that the, getting these small scraps and using these small scraps was one of the reasons why you started to kind of make more small stuff? Like, I see, like, when I look at your work, I see a lot of, besides all the, the folding knives that I really want to talk to you about, but, like, even, your, your, you know, the belt buckles that you've made, the you know, the leaf, the forged leaf bu buckles, mm -hmm. um, I feel like that there's this economy of material. That's one of the things, like, I have a, I have a in my shop, I have a drawer filled with small offcuts of different steels, and I label each one, because mm -hmm. I know that I could do something with them, and... It, the smallness of it gives you this kind of nice ability to see, like, okay, what can I make that's small? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I made a lot of small knives starting out just because they're quicker and easier. Uh, plus, like, you know, I've, I had four hours a week to where I could work on this stuff. So, like, I was trying to get as much done as I could wait and then have to wait around for another week and then work on it again so right uh the speed of it all yeah that kind of gets me to the you know some of your folders I mean I, I when I started making knives I was making full tag knives just because of the I wasn't interested in I didn't have the what it took my my I'm just I didn't have the, what it took to kind of 
deal with the springs and the small parts and stuff like that. It's just like, for some reason I was like, my hands are too, my fingers are too big. I, I can't do this. What got you into doing the, the folding knives, especially like the Hegos and the Duk Duks? Yeah. Yeah. Doing the Hegos, uh, uh, a friend of mine at the school there, he was, um, he started making them because he was seeing Nick Rossi making them. It's like, oh, those are cool. Like, I can do that. So he started making them. And I was like, man, that's really cool. Like, I'm going to try that too. So um, at this time, uh, obviously, I was still taking classes there. But um, I started to have, like, I had my own belt grinder and my own little shop set up to where I could still I could do pretty much everything I needed to on my own uh so yeah that was in um like 2005 or something I think one of the things that interests me I've never heard 2015 (laughs) yeah 2005 is when I did the uh New England School of Metalwork class, and then I had never heard the word Higo, uh, no Kami, until I think I think I I think it was I know that it, I first heard it from you or Mareko said Mareko Mawasi says, oh yeah, Charlie makes Higos, <laughs> and I I didn't I always assumed, and the funny thing with knives and stuff like that, I be honest with you, I try to be as honest and as forthcoming as possible. And what I don't do is I really don't use like the traditional names because part of me feels like I'm just talking for me myself. Like I just think like I'm just a dope. I'm not going to pretend like I know what any of this means. So why why even bother? So I really stay away from like when it comes to like the different shape, the different styles of shapes of like kitchen knives and stuff like that. I don't know the different Japanese names for it all, and I can't really, I just don't get involved with it. But I was interested in the whole Higo thing, and I actually looked it up. So he, I always assumed that Higo no Kami was a style of knife, but it really, it is, but it's more along the lines of a company name. Yeah, it's like a, like a brand name, basically, like Xerox or something. Do you know, do you know the history of it all, or any of it? Um, I know a little bit. I know school children in like in the nineteen forties or whatever would have like pencil sharpening competitions with their Higo no Kamis. Really? Yeah. Can you imagine kids <laughs> doing a pencil sharpening? What was the? How would they? You know, the, 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 it makes a lot of sense because I have I've uh, in the town I live in. There are these Japanese groups that come to do uh, paper. They do. They have these special uh, forged. Uh, it's like it's like different Japanese versions of like spoke shaves, and they do competitions on how thin they can get the ribbons and how long they can of of the of the wood and stuff like oh, that, yeah. like the shaving things. <laughs> I was fascinated that so so I guess so Higo Kami knife. This was from uh, this website, this JapaneseKnife.eu. Uh, Hikurokami knives were born in 1896 in the Meiji era of Japan when a man named, uh, I'm going to screw this one up, that's fine, Tasaburo Shigematsu brought back a knife from uh, the Kyushu province and asked a knife maker named Teiji uh, uh, Murakami 
um, to manufacture. The original knife had the mis had a misconception from the start, and it didn't feature any device to lock the blade. The story says um, that this maker named uh, Murakami, who had the first idea to he uh, he had the first idea to add the lever to the blade, thus giving the knife the look that it has today, ensuring its commercial success. Uh, some sources mention a second blacksmith to have been influential to birth. The story of the Higo uh, intertwines with the tormented Japanese history of the past two centuries. Um, blah, 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 blah. Oh, gosh. In, 19, uh, in 1899, a knife maker guild was created, uh, and the name Higo no Kami was trademarked. Only members of the corporation could manufacture the knife. The tale of the Higo changes um, into a success story. Uh, he became the most popular, it became the most popular Japanese knives. And as you said, one of all the kids had in their school bags a utilitary pocket knife for every day. Pencil sharpening mass contests were even organized. You got that. <laughs> um, with, um, with rewards for the fastest. That was the contest. So who could fa do it the fastest? Um, what's interesting is, is like the concept of this knife and, and my experience with it is I had one growing up. My the dad had one. My dad gave me one. He think he got it in Chinatown, New York somewhere. But then my friend Tony, who was in Japan a couple of years ago, he brought one back and he gave it to me. And he says, you know, I was at this fish market, the famous fish market. I don't know. I don't remember the name. It's a fa it's the famous fish market in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And he says they have boxes of these and they use them for like the way we use disposable razor blades. Oh, yeah. Like they're so there's every different style and size and stuff like that. So they're 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 very disposable. Mm -hmm. Like the material, the handle material is very like kind of flimsy. And, you know, you can see that it's like a little bit like. Uh, it's it's bowed a little bit where they put the rivet in and it's it's I find the it's fascinating that the real the style that they're using is this very you know it's supposed to be inexpensive it's supposed to be kind of like disposable yeah you know and then when I look at your work you've kind of taken that style and just kind of like elevated to this to this degree one of the things about your uh, your well your any type of your your folding knives especially the he goes is you tend to use um, materials like, I know that you use parts of a keg, mm -hmm. where you've taken the part of the keg that has stamped in danger, and you made the handle out of that to the point where when it folds up and is as a, a handle, you're you're kind of creating this idea of, of kind of like, it's like a collage to me. There's a much more sculptural nature to it because you're actually seeing a part of the of this keg or like a symbol, like a drum symbol. I don't know how the name that Zildjian. Jin, I don't know the name. Yeah, I don't know how to Zildjian. Yeah, Zildjian. I was pretty close. Yeah. But I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking to myself a couple days ago, I'm like, how am I going to say that name? I, I can't figure out. <laughs> I don't worry about it. They know I don't know how these things. Yeah. But you're able to take these these parts of the material and you're, you're able to isolate the, the qualities of them to create almost like like a uh, like it's like a collage it's very similar to collage where you're able to kind of like form those things and have the material that you see be intrinsic to the knife yeah yeah it's like it's cool to have that to where like you can see you can look at it and be like what's with this like lettering on it and stuff and be like hey that's yeah. a that was part of a beer cake and you're like oh man that's cool you know it's 
Well, it takes it out of them. I mean, the, the thing about the, these forged friction folders, these forged, you know, slip joints, is because you're not dealing with... Um, one of the things I love about them is you're not carving. You're not carving the handles. You're not sanding the handles. When you make these kind of fold-over, you know, these clamshell, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. handle, it the material is what the material is. And you're not, I mean, obviously you can stamp into it. And I, 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 when I do it, I actually, I like the idea of, I, I, I was inspired by you in terms of the idea of taking a found object that you know, and then just kind of manipulating it into the handle. And the ones that I've done, uh, once again, I was inspired by seeing the ones done by, uh, by, by uh, Nick Rossi. But there's also, there's another, uh, there's another Japanese bladesmith in, um, that I follow on Instagram. His name is Nobuya Hayashi. I don't know if you know him. Oh, yeah, I think I follow him too. He is this Japanese bladesmith and doing traditional style uh, chef knives, but he's also doing the, those, the higos, like, but the traditional ones. And there's like, it's an elevated. It isn't like the ones that you see from Chinatown, stuff like that. I was inspired by what you guys were all doing, and I, what I liked about what you were doing specifically is the I liked the idea of finding this found object as a handle. I also was like, I am so psyched I don't have to deal with glue. There is no glue here at all. Yeah. And I started to kind of bending. When I was doing it, I was bending, I was using uh, angle iron mm -hmm. because when you bend the angle iron, the ridge of the angle itself kind of makes this like strange like peak it's almost like an arabesque peak and i love that and i was just like and then it's and it's thick if it's eighth of an inch you can stamp into it it's not going to move around a lot it was a fun way for me to take these found objects and just kind of put, manipulate them into this product that and i attribute that to you you know yeah that's cool yeah it's always i always love seeing people be inspired by what i do it it means a lot to be like, hey, like they think so much of my work that they want to like do something inspired by it. You know, it's it's always um, it's always well, a nice I know feeling. That, I know that you've done. I mean, I think that if you were to look at like that stuff, the first friction folders I ever saw was I think some guys were doing them in Blade Show, and basically it was like they were cutting out G10 and then pinning it all together. And the P the G10 was the handle and stuff like that. And it just looked like fine. But to, mm -hmm. when you started taking the parts of the kegs or parts of the, the, the symbols, I, f you can see it in the work itself. And it's, and it's a manipulation of this found object. And, you know, it's funny cause I was talking to, when I was talking to Pat Quinn a couple times ago, we were talking about how we both hate found object sculpture. And a lot of yeah. it's because there's a lot of it's because usually what'll happen is somebody will just, you know weld a chain to a plowshare and then you see the mig weld and then it's just like okay that's art as opposed to taking something manipulating it but also keeping its you know original you know qualities to it and, and uh, the symbols in the in the in the in the and the, the um the symbols in the kegs are really something that's very inspiring what what do you think the most <sighs> when did you decide to like find you know see hey you know what this symbol could be could work how did you how did you kind of figure out all these different things? Yeah, uh, I guess I was thinking about it doing like a drum symbol or something because I really like bronze as a material. 
And that's a classic, that's a classic handle for a lot of those Higos. A lot of these guys are using annealed, you know, brass mm -hmm. as the handle. Yeah, a lot of them are brass handled. Uh, so yeah, like, it's like, hey, that'd be cool. But like, I wasn't going to buy a new drum symbol to cut up and uh, form into a handle. But one right. day I was at the, the scrap yard digging through the like copper and brass bins and stuff. And there was a busted up drum symbol. It's like... So I like took it in the cracked part. I like with my hands saw if I could like bend it without it breaking or something. And it, it bent over. It's like, yeah, that should work. Like I bought it. I don't know. It was like five bucks or something by the, by the pound, whatever scrap weight was of mixed copper. Uh, so yeah, like I, I took it home and cut it out and folded it up and made a go out of it. It's like, oh man, this is cool. Like it, it works great. Yeah, because because that's the thing. The symbols have like a texture, like those you know, concentric circles. So you're able to kind of like incorporate those in, and then you know, like I said, when you were doing it with, uh, you were able to like, if you see a keg with some, it says danger on it. You're able to be like, all right, let's isolate that part, and then like have that part be in the the handle. It was just such a very it's a very clever and unique way to take this old style and kind of bring it up to date. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like, especially with the kegs, with all the stamping and stuff. I I made up a like a plexiglass template to where I can see where I can fit the handle shape and see what would be on it. To where I'll be like, oh, can I fit? Can I fit this warning here, or can I fit this Surgeon General's warning on the handle? that's how you do it you gave away a giant trick yeah uh, that's all right <laughs> holy moly ladies and germs that is a gem yeah the, now you can play because i i know that um nick wheeler when he makes he well, p.s i'm uh, nick listens to this podcast nick you are always welcome on this podcast i'm gonna get a hold of you if you want i'm leaving it there he had a video a while ago where he was he made his handle shape and then cut the inside out so he left basically it was a stencil with the handle shape and you could see what would be the handle and then he would move the stencil over the wood to figure out exactly how he wanted the wood grain to look on the handle yeah it was such a smart idea because, you know, obviously, you know, I get sometimes I, 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 you know, you do, you know, want that wood to, you know, be accentuated a certain way and for you to be able to see it. And now that I know that you're doing it with plexiglass, look at you. How'd you figure that move out after you probably cut up a pile of, <laughs> you ruined a couple, ruined a few handles before you figured the, the plexiglass out? Uh, uh, I think, well, hold on. Did I? I might have got it from Adam uh, Built Sharp there. I think he was doing something with plexiglass before for handles or something. Adam? Adam listens to the podcast. He was on this podcast. Yeah. He's Here's what's interesting to me in regards. So I know you're friends with Adam, and we're all, everybody I talk to, we all kind of know each other and stuff. Like uh huh. One of the things that interests me in terms of comparing and contrasting in the sense of like the different like directions you're going. Adam's work, Adam's folders are very, very 
beautifully machined and they look like a, a person has never touched it you know it feels like it was professionally manufactured and that's one of the beauties of his work one of the things that i love about your work is i feel the hand of the maker in the work and i feel this this huge sense of humanity which i like because when i was growing up and my dad was teaching me how to paint He's just like, don't be so concerned about the paint strokes. Let them be what they are. Let Show some humanity. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I was so drawn to the Hoff, the Uri Hoffi style of hammer uh, forging because I, I, it spoke to me this kind of idea of just, you know, let the spontaneity hit and have a little bit of humanity to it. Yeah. Um, your work speaks to that. Like, I feel like every knife you've ever made, it feels like these were hand-worked. And I hope you don't take that as a as an insult. No. Yeah, I, I enjoyed like, you know, having leaving the the forge finish finish on the on the flats of the folders and stuff, and just like forging out the little curly cues on the levers and yeah. just making it feel, you know, like like someone you know actually beat it out and worked on it you know and but refined refined work but still like hand work you know but i also see that in all your work in terms of the designs like the design design decisions that you make feel like it's made by hand and what's interesting is is when you start to look at other knives that you've done like the we got to talk about the duk duk yeah the duk duk is so fascinating to me i once again i just assumed all right, this is knife terminology, duk duk. <laughs> what do you know about so the duk duk for for the listeners is basically a slip joint folder, except you know with the slip joint folder you see the bar that locks everything. It kind of you see it's usually tight between the the um, the materials, and then as you're bending the knife, it kind of flexes up to close and stop, and then you see the actual bar move. With a duk-duk, it's not like that. It's similar to the, it's similar handle to the uh, the Higo, where it's like nothing's exposed, the, the, the bar isn't exposed. Is that a fair a fair description? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a slip joint Higo. <laughs> right, okay, they're perfect, Yeah. perfect. What do you know? I so I just assume that this is like this is just a, this is a normal style. And I'm just a, I'm just a philistine. I don't know anything about it. What do you know about the duck duck? Yeah, um, I mean it's just like a specific company again, isn't it? Where did you hear about a duck duck? I like at the uh, at the college there, they started doing hammer ends for the ABS, and I don't know. A year or two in there, like everyone was really into duck ducks. Like, oh, there's this cool folding knife. Which at that time, I was, I was all the way into fixed blade whatever stuff, you know. And it's like I don't, I didn't even pay attention to it. Uh, but then, like uh, three or four years ago, we went up, me and my wife and our our. Uh, almost two-year-old at the time. We got three kids now, but that was before the other two. Um, we went up and hung out with Adam and Haley DeRosiers for a week up in Alaska. Wow. Uh, so yeah, we were up there, and they had a Duke, a, a Duke Duke just laying around the kitchen table, 
So I was like looking at it and Adam was like, you should make one of those. It's basically a slip joint Higo. It's like, yeah, you're right. Like that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward. I think I could, I think I could do that. So, uh, a few months later when I finally had a, a little bit of time to work on it, I started working on one and busted the spring. At first I had a piece of um, piano wire that was eighth inch that I like bent around and I I think I ended up hardening it, rehardening it. Oh yeah, I rehardened it because I had to like scroll it around where the pin would be. Right. Um, so I was like, well, I'll have to reharden it. So I hardened it and left it too hard and it just snapped in half. It's like, oh, that stinks. So I, I redid the the spring with a piece of bar stock, eighth inch, probably 15 inch one year or something, and put a, just torched it to blue after hardening it and put that together and it it worked it was the action was a little iffy but uh it was functionable it was functioning but you're working blind yeah like if you can't really if the, the whole that's the that's what i what i get out of it is you know a slip joint folder that bar, the bar that holds it down has got like two pins there's one at the kind of in the middle and the one in the back to kind of stabilize the bar and then the bar flexes as the thing moves but if you can't see anything how how, how do you how the heck do you know where to put it <laughs> yeah just a lot of going back and forth which yeah like with the duke duke I, it's end up it's just one pin holding the spring in because above that pin it's just putting pressure up against the the top of the handle where it it can't go up any higher, you know, so it's locked right. in there. But yeah, like having that fit up inside of there, like it's just a at the bottom of an eighth inch gap. You're like, well, <laughs> it's hard to see in there to see what's going on. So you just got to kind of fiddle with it till it it lays in there how you want, and it's at the right angle. The history of the duck duck is a little bit crazy. Oh yeah, because. It started out in 1929 when uh, this guy, Gaspard Cognier, uh, everybody called him Gaston, decided to target a Melanesian market with a new folding knife. So Melanesian is like Fiji Islands, uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, islands a little bit north and and, um, east of Australia, right? Hmm. So the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, and he's French, right? Mm -hmm. And he's in the town of Thiers. That's not too far from where Craig Lockwood lives. Oh, yeah. So Thiers is the big, Thiers is the big French knife uh, manufacturing company. So in 1929, this guy, Kanye, Starts, he he starts uh, at the end of the nineteenth twentieth uh, century. Tears was exporting its knives to all over the world, especially the vast French colonial empire. Um, and Kanye was one of the best. I don't think I'm saying his name right. I'm gonna just say Comte Gaston. So Gaston and his family were one of the biggest manufacturers targeting the French islands. Uh, they, they thought, well, let's target the French islands in the Pacific Ocean, which to me seems crazy. Yeah. It's like you're living in France. Why would you try to why would you try to target for this obscure group of 
colony islands. And trust me, they probably don't want nothing to do with you either. When I was younger, I went to my, my mother was ill. And it's to the point where she's like, I'm taking everybody on a trip. We ended up going to Tahiti. Mm-hmm. And Tahiti is a French colony. So they speak French. Mm. But trust me, the people in Tahiti are, are very nice people. We had a great time. One of the most beautiful places in the world. I mean, the water is incredible. But the French used to test their nuclear arms in this area. And it Jeez. was like, how can you do this? Yeah. And then, you know, you can tell that the people of Tahiti were just like, you know, these French are just like crazy. Yeah. So this guy decides he's going to target the French, um, these French islands with this new idea. Huh. So he designed a knife to be inexpensive and sturdy. Sturdy. Made of six parts, a carbon steel blade, a ferro-black and folded sheet metal piece of uh, handle, a strong spring nestled in between the handle and the back of the two rivets to assemble, and that's it. So then when he was looking for a commercial catch, uh, he was trying to figure out how he's going to sell this thing. I mean, it's just like, okay, he's figured out how to make it, but then how is he going to promote it? Um, this was the long before Google and Wikipedia and illustrated and, and an illustrated dictionary he found a, a, a picture of the local divinity called the Duk Duk. Hmm. Have you heard of this? Is this new to you? I hope it's new. Yeah, I haven't heard this. So the Duk Duk is sometimes called the god of chaos and doom. Hmm. It's an important figure in the Malaysian culture. The costumes, costumes, the costume is made up of a conical hat and a cylindrical mask made of bark and palm trees leaves down to the down to the knees. So I'm looking at a picture of this duk-duk. It's basically like a person, and they have this huge... It's like a very round costume of all of, like, palm leaves. And their heads are these cones with these crazy black faces and giant eyes and stuff. Like, I'll post a picture in the, in the whole thing. Um... God of chaos and doom. I bet you didn't know that. All right. So, um, so what happens is the costume is made of a conical hat and a cylindrical mask made of bark, palm tree leaves down to the knees. And he, the Duk Duk goes around screaming in the villages, scaring people off until he reaches the hut of the person suspected of a crime to deliver punishment. So the Duk Duk is the god of vengeance too. So he come into your house and he's going to give it to you. Hmm. You, you get a knock on the door from the Duk Duk. Things aren't good. Yeah. Um, so uh, nobody dares going against him, as death would be would strike uh, would uh, with death would struck struck anyone who raised a hand against the Duktuk. The legend also gives him the power of healing. Uh, in this little character, looking like a mix between a pineapple and a fir tree. So Gaston found this symbol and he patented it in 1930. So the original Duktuks have this little. Uh, image of the a duk duk do their their the deity, um, kind of uh, yeah, isn't engraved it into, the handle. into the handle or something, right? Stamped into the handle or great yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah, in the sure handle some way or another. <laughs> so uh, to complete his design, he opted for a Turkish clip, which is a scimitar style blade decorated with an electrochemical etching, figuring of arabesques to give it more of an exotic look. So basically. They, he's just like, I mean, this is like, this is like if you made a knife for people of New York and you have a picture of like, you know, an apple on it or something mm-hmm. like that. There, he's, he's doing everything he can to make the people of Melanesia like this knife. So there's all these uh, arabesque things on the blade. And then there's this, the god of 
mischief and chaos. Chaos and doom is on the front. <laughs> so the mil so how how it goes is the Melanesian market was a disaster, and the stocks were read. So then they were. I mean, they couldn't. I, I mean, how do you not know this? I mean, how do you not think that these? You're trying to make a cheap knife for people who probably don't have a pile of money. And these colonizers are trying to sell these ridiculous knives to them. So they're just like, no, we're not buying these. So they redirected, the Melanesian market was a disaster, and the stocks were redirected to another market in the colonial empire, of course. We got colonies all over the place, Francis thinking. And um, they finally met success in the French colonies of North Africa, hmm. where the people liked this low price and high quality steel, easy to sharpen, um, that was even used sometimes as a razor. Hmm. From there, it migrated to sub-Saharan Africa and arrived in pygmy tribes. It was carried by the French Foreign Legion and other colonial troops that reached uh, with troops assignments. The uh, tr it, uh, re uh, Sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, it re it reached uh, with troop assignments the Middle East through Lebanon, the Southeast, uh, Southeast Asia through Indochina, and in 1939, it became the national pocket knife of Algeria. Hmm. Now, this is interesting, and I'm, I'm kind of going off, because the history be between the French and the Algerians are, to this day, bad. I mean, this is like, you know, you, 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 all these, you know, people from Algeria end up getting, you know, migrating up to France, and then there's this, you know, not to mention, besides racism and stuff like that, there's just this economic and societal, you know, you've given birth to these people, and then they come here, and then you reject them. So, the... Um, the differential variants were created with different blade shapes, so, you know, clip point, drop point, blah, 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 blah. So they changed the names to like the, some of the models were the Lion, Le Leon, and the Saharan. So they went from the Malay, the the, uh, the Fiji Islands and all that stuff to all right, let's rename these into like something like South African or not South African, but like let's 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 use you know African words. So there's the uh, El Deeb. Uh, there's the La Baraka and then La Saharian, and they really kind of, this became something, um, these are really became, um, very like targeted towards now we given up on this. We given up on the South Pacific. Now we're all in on Africa. Yeah. The Dukedic gained its infamous killer reputation during the Algerian independence war, largely available with the, with the sharp blade and flat enough to easily conceal it was the perfect weapon. Once you opened it, you just hammer the two ears at the base of the blade to change it into a fierce fixed blade. Okay, hmm. so I guess they were making it so there was like a kind of like a hook on it. I guess you could chain, you could move the 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 loop, and then the loop would kind of make it a lock. Um, hmm. And. Uh, once open, you can hammer the two ears at the base of the blade to change into a fierce fixed fighter, uh, ready to stab or uh, any private officer who dared enter the Casbah. Uh, it was dangerous that the French counterintelligence considered it as a military equipment and banned its exportation to Algeria and seized the existing stocks. These seized knives were then given to the troops as a utility knife. Uh, 1962, the Algerian independence, the uh, repatriated troops, troops and civilians bring back the Duc Duc de France, where um, it is unknown and uh, and built up its reputation. So the Duc Duc is um, uh, today the knife is still being produced using almost the same process and tools. Only concession to, Monde uh, to uh, only concession to modernity. Some models are fitted with a stainless steel blade. 
but most um, appreciated remains historical carbon steel. It, it's a great pocket knife with a rich history. Yeah, the rich history is a you know is making giant mistakes in terms of your ideas <laughs> and then you know using weird cultural you know generalizations to try to market it towards people who don't want your nonsense yeah can you believe that can you was that a i mean of all the knives i mean you can the whole thing in france with all their knives when i was a kid i you know growing up and there was a lot of restaurant business and my dad was friends with we were in the restaurant stuff all the time i remember seeing laiole knives that's the it's it's it looks like it says la guiel or something like that but it's laiole mm-hmm. they were considered the waiter's knife and they have uh you know it's a it's a slip joint knife with a corkscrew on the back and then it has you know a lot of file work in the in the mechanisms and stuff like that and they're very reasonably priced the blade looks kind of is more like a basque style knife i think that's what it's kind of considered more mm-hmm. but they're considered like the waiter's knife right I just assumed that this one company named Lyol, well, that's not the case because they lost the patent. Lyol, you know, you could, you know, you don't have to be from the Lyol family. You can just start knocking off Lyol knives and then no one's coming after you. Hmm. But the Duk Duk, I got to get my hands, not only do I got to get my hands on one of yours, but I got to get my hands on one with a stamped nerd on it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably try to order one before this down, this comes through because I think people are going to be <laughs> hitting up, they're going to be hitting up Amazon for those $30, you know, stamped Duk Duk demon god of chaos <laughs> yeah. knives. Did you have any idea of that history? No. Uh, Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. So, world traveling knife. But it's like, it's almost like, it's the crazy thing is, it's like, obviously this guy Gaston is just like, here's what we're going to do, see? We're going to come up with this idea, we're going to focus it on this one market, and then all of a sudden, you know, you send all these, you, you come up with these focaccia, you know, designs and stuff like that, names, and like, we're going to name it after their god, they must love this god of, you know, doom and chaos, yeah. and then next thing you know, this weirdo is now like, it does super well, and I'm sure probably a lot of those Algerians are just happy to like, stick their you know this french knife into the stick into the french soldiers that's probably my thoughts yeah so one of the things that about your knives in general and that's the the funny thing of this duk duk thing that 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 to me is like the history of like it's almost like this kind of rube goldberg idea you know the rube rube, rube goldberg with these crazy kind of contraptions and it seems as though this guy gaston was just very much along the lines of all right this isn't working let's let's just change directions but let's not change anything else i find that what you have done and the other thing is i guess both the the original he goes as well as the duk duk knives they both have a quality of not only they're very similar in the sense of like they're meant to be inexpensive they're meant to be um they felt like i read one article about the duk duks or the hegos i couldn't really tell where you you see you feel the humanity in the construction you see like there's scuff parts and maybe there'll be a little dent and this is just kind of like made by this you know these small manufacturing groups and what I love about what you've done is you've taken these very meager knives that are not considered high art or high end or something like that. And then you've elevated the whole concept to the point where your he goes, you know, you, I know you, you fold around a little bit of a the clip 
and then even with your duck ducks and you kind of like fold it around a little bit and then you create these pocket clips mm -hmm. they're very or yours are very very ornate and, it, and it's interesting because you've taken something very like pedestrian and you've elevated it to a certain degree yeah it's yeah it's cool to be like you know just take some like super rudimentary just like basic thing and be like how let's let's just like take that take those building blocks and do something like really nice and just see how like elegant we can make that design it's it's cool to do that like i've always wanted to do just like like a putty knife but like make it out of damascus and have like an ebony handle to it or just some like disposable tool that you like don't even think about but like you know people people have earned their livelihood like on this tool you know and it's right. it's worth uh making something nice out of it to be like this you know it may just be a piece of sheet metal with some a little piece of wood riveted to it but like where would we be without it right i that's to me i love that concept i mean it I think it's a it's 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 a it's a direction now. I mean now, when, you know when you you're one of those knife makers that you like you look at your whole body of work, and you see that you see the similarities and you see the direction that you've gone. But with your I I love your I love your folding knives because they're very approachable in terms of like the construction. Like I look at when I look at uh, Aaron Wilburn's folding knives, uh, I just look at them and they're just I'm just like how do you how do you this how do you do it you know same thing with adam you look at adam's knives you're just like how is he doing it? i mean it's just a, there's no but when i look at your knives i feel this american ingenuity i feel this this hands-on uh quality to them and they have this approachability that i just i just love i love everything about them well, thanks yeah I, that's really kind of you to say i appreciate that no, but I mean, it's, I see them. I have one of your Quakens. Oh yeah, that's another thing. That's another knife that is a fascinating. Is it? How do you pronounce? I, I always get it wrong. Uh, I don't know. I, I probably get it wrong. Yeah, I just say Quaken. Quaken. Which, so that's so, like the American bastardization version of the. Uh, I think the, the actual Japanese knife is a a Quaken is what it's how it's pronounced, I believe. But don't. Don't quote me on that. I'm just a Dude, American white worry. boy. <laughs> don't worry about. It. Listen, we're we all we're all good with the duck duck. So yeah. I don't even know if we're saying that Probably right. Probably not. So don't worry about that. <laughs> one of the things about that knife is interesting, and I got one from you, and I love it. I like looking at it because I guess that those style knives and they became very popular because, you know, it's different than those tantos because there's a little bit of flair, especially with yours. And, and I noticed that with your work in general is there's just a, always like a subtle arc. And the Quakens are, I guess they were for the wives of samurais to have in their sleeve. Mm -hmm. So they weren't unarmed. They're very small, very, there's a very uh, delicate, um, there's a very like elegant style to these particular knives. And I see that within all of your smaller knives, this very delicate uh, elegance. I'm fascinated by what you're going to do next because you are the Duk Duk King. <laughs> you, you are the Duk Duk King. You're the Hego Man. I 
feel like you have something going on next with these Higos that you're not you that I think that you're going to tell me. That's what I think. Yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> Go uh, ahead. Yeah, I've got a new Higo design that I want to do. Hopefully, this near year, probably end up doing it next year. But I want to do a bolt action lock locking Higo to where you know, like a bolt action rifle where it's got the little ball and stick sticking out on the okay where you like lift it up and pull it back okay. and then push it forward and pull it and put it back down to where you load around into the chamber yeah uh but basically that would like that would be a tube at the top of the handle to where it would slide into the lever and lock it into place but i want to do it so... automatically to where like just pull, putting the lever down would rotate that bolt and then it'd be spring loaded to where it, it'd lock it in place. So the lo- so it's not it's so it is the, the, the action is still gonna be it's gonna be folding up from from the handle. And then the bolt action part's gonna be the lock. Yeah. So it'd be like a it'd still be like a basic Higo with the lever, but then the lever would be trapped by that tube bolt to keep it open. Look at you. Look at you. You like to make it complicated. I know. (laughs) You take these very very simple and elegant designs and you figure out how I could possibly make it more and more complicated. Yeah, I just, I like to give myself a lot of, a lot of uh, trouble and pain. (laughs) Speaking of trouble, you just posted a, I think it's, I don't think, it's a duk-duk, I think. I think it's a duk-duk where you made the handle out you made the handle look to be bamboo yeah yeah that was a duke a duke duke that seems more you know gaston should have been doing that <laughs> instead of like stamping some goofball on the on the on the on the knife yeah because the, the one thing is is the first time i ever did anything kind of commercially is i was outside of college and then I had a studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and I got contacted by this company. This was a disaster area of job. I got, there was this company that was making custom fire screens. And I, a customer of mine showed them and they contacted me to be their, to be their, pardon me, they, to be their fabricator. So I ended up, they would, these guys would come to my shop with a cardboard template that I'd have to make a custom fire screen for and it was always a disaster because the templates were horrible i mean i don't know if you know about this but like when you're doing templates you really are in charge you should be in charge of the templates if if other people are doing the templates for you it's always a wreck so i would do it exactly to the template that they would give me and, it, and then i get a call screaming and hollering you this is wrong or and i was yeah. saying, just bring it back stop screaming at me but one of the things i did was i made a fire i made a fire set and I wanted the handles to look like bamboo. So what I did was I cut a pile of tube and then, and I didn't have any blacksmithing experience whatsoever. I was just doing some welding. I would p- cut a pile of tube. Each piece of tube was like two inches long. And then I would stick one end of the tube in basically a horn or a horn that I made. And then I would put like a chisel or like a, or kind of like, I guess a, at the time I didn't really have names for it, but like a drift. And then I would open them up. So I'd splay both ends up mm-hmm. and then I would put a piece of steel in between the two and then I'd weld up in between. And then I created the, what looked like 
and then I would just kind of quickly grind them, and then I, all the segments bumped up together, and then I made basically what looked like a piece of. I mean, it was a it was a lot of work to make something look like it was a lot of work to make this like you know three you know two foot a fireplace poker look like bamboo. Yeah. But what you did was you were able to carve into the handle to create this very very extraordinary technique uh, and texture to create this bamboo handle. Are you going to do more of that kind of sculpting? That's that's when I hear sculpting handles, that to me is sculpting yeah. handles. Yeah, I I definitely want to do that again. That was I really enjoyed that a lot, which like that whole bamboo aesthetic I um I learned that from the guy who I that knife was a collaboration between me and uh Robert Burns uh which he's done a few he goes and like a quaken and a couple of things that he did that like bamboo texture to it. It's like, oh man, that's that's really cool. Like, uh, we should do uh, a collaboration sometime on something like that. Because he was like, he contacted me asking if he could borrow my uh, integral clip design of the Hegos. It's like, yeah, like no problem, go for it. And hey, do you mind if I try doing your bamboo sculpting? So we're like, well, let's just make one together, you know? So uh, I ended up doing that bamboo carving, which the handle was wrought iron. So it's got like this grain to it already. But then I'm just like chiseling like little cracks into it to make it look like an old uh, worn out piece of bamboo that's been falling apart. It, you you've captured that perfectly and i think that it fits completely within the style of those stuff that you do because it hasn't all your work has this aged quality you know whether or not you with the duct i mean if you're using brass or bronze for a handle even like you know the or you're using like the symbols for a handle you can't get away from them having an aged look i mean brass is to be look like age especially a, uh, you know, a former symbol. It's going to have where the dark parts are, where the raised parts are. You're going to have high spots and low spots, and you're going to have different colors and, and depths, and, and you're going to have that look. That look is automatically going to have that patinaed aged look. So for you to kind of create this, you know, iron bamboo that looked like it had been there. I mean, it looked like it was out of a, like, a, you know, some tiki bar guy is going to show up <laughs> and give you a, a suffering bastard. You know about that drink? And then, um, you know about that drink? Uh-uh. Oh, suffering bastard is the, if you ever find like a Polynesian, a longhouse uh, bar, usually they'll have a suffering bastard. And it is, uh, it's a crazy drink. I don't remember exactly what's in it, but I was telling a friend of mine's restaurant about the suffering bastard. He's like, this is a tiki bar drink. And then they put on the menu, Jeff's suffering bastard for a while. So, <laughs> But I mean, that's what it would look like if you were the waiter and you coming over with the you're gonna you serve something with that, that handle. <laughs> yeah. I I I so for me, getting through that. I mean, I I mean, I would hate to pigeonhole you and say that's your thing. I mean, when now you've teamed up with Eating Tools, Abe. I love Abe. I I, I met Abe. I like Abe. I appreciate the people he's representing. And we're getting to the point where Abe might have to send me a fruit basket because I'm going to be speaking with another eating tools guy next week. 
you do these integral chef knives that still besides the fact that they're they have incredible shapes and designs you do one with this with this um kind of like a swedge on the top and it it has this kind of stealth fighter quality to it your lines are always very precise and your in your handles are always everything looks very 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 crisp and just beautiful your integral chef knives are just beautiful i noticed that in one of in, in one of the recent ones you've done you 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 know you take out some material towards the bolster and you make these kind of i don't know what you'd call them reliefs or troughs that re, that remind me of the stuff you were doing with the wrought iron and the handles you have this quality this handmade quality but there is this there's this design that I see in all your work that that I know it's that you did it. There's no question about it. Well, that's that's good. Yeah, like I feel like my style is kind of it's pretty varied like the different things I do. Like I do the more like kind of rough yet refined stuff and then I'm doing like the the real slick chef knives and stuff but i i guess just the the lines and the aesthetic are just i really pay attention to profiles and like where lines are going and curves and s just slight tweaks and things you know how did you get hooked up with jason knight from uh the haywood community college doing the the hammer ends there he would come up and he would teach some classes and stuff and i just got to know him then and he'll he'll talk he'll say um one year we did a cutting competition back when the abs was still doing those and i i did it with a sword that i forged out that i had the um the pommel of the sword was an anvil and jason was like hey that's really cool like how do you <laughs> how did you how did you do that to where you had the pommel be an anvil? So I just told him that I like had it threaded on and had a, a stop pin to where it wouldn't spin before putting the wooden handle on. Uh, which like it did terribly in the cutting competition because swords aren't really meant to chop through two by fours and <laughs> yeah, do I stuff like I that. Imagine. I have no idea. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. I just got to got to know him and Bert Foster and uh Joe Kiesler and all the wow. all the great ABS guys uh but yeah then I ended up going down and spending a week in a, a week with him with uh, a couple of my other friends Bob Brandle and Shelby Mihalovich. uh this was in well this was like 6 years ago huh. 6 or 6 or 7 it was we were expecting our first kid and he's he's gonna be six so yeah it was like six years ago we just went down for a week and hung out and goofed off and made steel and made knives and that was when i really got to got to know him you know other than him just wandering around swinging around knives making lightsaber sounds and saying star wars yeah. is stupid <laughs> He's an interesting guy. Oh, he's great. He's a very fascinating guy. He's a great yeah. guy. I, I, I was fortunate enough to talk to him a few times, and he's just like, he seems like, he seems like a child. He has a Peter Pan thing going on. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Like it's, but it's not right. You know, it's not a total Peter Pan thing. Like you know, Peter Pan, Peter Pan is a is a is like a syndrome of wanting to be a child. I don't think he wants to be a you know uh, he doesn't seem to me like he wants to be a consummate child, but he has like this kind of very lust lustful uh, way of being uh, stuck in the innocence of you know adolescence that I appreciate. Yeah, you know. But I mean, that's a his whole crew. I mean, you're part of that whole crew with Kurt Halland and and I know Quentin's down there once in a while. I know he was uh, he was friends with. He's you know Quentin knows you know he as he said on this podcast he owes Jason Knight his life. Yeah, you got quite a crew down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I think or it wasn't that year though. The next year we went down for a few days, and that's when I met Quentin. I had a this like kind of polearm sword thing kind of like a like the elvish swords in lord of the rings where it's got like the it's basically like what the higo katana was but it wasn't folding i had that and a couple other like uh no no uh knives and stuff and i brought on the show jason and jason's like oh quentin's gotta see this stuff because when quentin first met jason you know he had those kung fu weapons and stuff it was all into that so that's when I meant Quentin Middleton. That was, which I think that was right when he had his big Kickstarter campaign, really hit it off with that. It, he, like I said, it's quite a crew down there. I mean, Kurt Freehill Freehill Blades is he's another monster. He's another. I mean, I see like I see I see I, for some reason I feel like you're one of Jason's acolytes, and he's just got like his his crew of acolytes are just extraordinary you know it's like a it's like a it, it definitely feels like a more of a clan that have, have all learned from him and, and i just you know i see it all and they're all you're all very much different especially you you're i mean i don't really see a lot of other knife makers who are who has a, such a breadth of work that is has this kind of a flair for and don't i apologize if this offends you but there's a fantasy element to your work i'll um, take it that I, all right. Well, fine. Good. Well, I, but I don't. But it's a very subtle. Like yeah. there's a subtlety to it. Like even on the last um, integral chef knife you had with eating tools, just the flare of the butt and the reliefs in the handle and stuff like that. There is a quality to it that has a degree of fantasy. And I just I, I find I find your work to be unique and all encompassing, and uh, I want more. You know, I I. I that Quiken, that Quiken, I had to have it. it during quarantine. I like, I just blew some money on a lot of knife makers, and I was super pumped to do it. But like, I know that I need a Higo and a and a Duk Duk in my life from 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 Charlie, Charlie Lionheart. Yeah, anytime. So what's next for you? You're 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 part of the you're part of the Eating Tools crew, which is just about as I mean, you can't get higher level. I mean. What Abe Abe's group of knife make you can't get much higher level than what Abe's got going on. So you're 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 on the you're on the eating crew team, eating tools team with Salem and Nick and and uh, Nick Anderson and and you got a pile of dudes down there. What's next for you? Uh, yeah, just more more folders, more chef knives. Just I've got I'm doing a lot of I got a couple mosaic chef knives that i'm real 
really pumped to see how those turn out the pattern the um it's kind of like almost like flames or something coming from the edge it's got a black edge which all fingers coming up and it just looks like it's gonna turn out really sweet so i'm really excited for those very good very good so if people want to get a hold of your i See, you, I know you're doing the chef knives over at Eating Tools, but what if somebody wants one of your Higos? What if somebody wants... Because that's the one thing about the folding knives, especially yours. One of the things about folding knives is you get a different feeling from them because they're a little bit more intimate and personal. When I say that, I mean, you know, with these knives, with these fixed blade knives that you put on your belt, it's another thing. It's almost more, it's, you know, unconsciously more like a tool. Mm -hmm. But with like these pocket knives, you end up having a little bit more of a personal relationship. There's more of an intimate relationship because you're just shoving them in your pocket. You're not, you don't, you just drop them in your pocket and you end up having it in your pocket. And I find that the, that may, that just that makes them more approachable. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you and say, Charlie Lionheart, get me one of them gods of doom knives. I need one in my life. Uh, How did he get a hold of you? Well, they can get to me on Instagram, uh, Charles Lionheart, which I actually, I just closed my books recently because I've got a, a back order of the Higos and some chef knives and stuff. And I just need to take a little break from orders and start being more creative, making new stuff. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do. Pretty much my bread and butter are chef knives and folders, so I kind of go between the two and then sometimes take a break between the two and do something else. So if you had your druthers and you could make whatever, like let's just say tomorrow you want to make something, what would you like to make? How how long do I have to work on it? <laughs> All right, I give you three days. <laughs> three days. Is that not enough time? I give you a week. a week. Whatever you want. You tell me. All right. Time is not the end. time. Is I want to know if you could make something. What would you make? Anything. I don't care about time. Okay. That's cool. Uh. Yeah, I've been wanting to make a crossbow for a long time. Oh. So, which of course, like, I'd want to do it all. Crazy, Damascus everything, and have the stock be like black. Uh, blackwood or something super nice you know have it real real classy looking but i don't i've i've done some i've done a a bit of research into them but like i really would need to make like one or two just like basic ones before spending a whole lot of time on making steel for it to end up breaking or not working good because like sure no one's gonna be like going around hunting pigs with it or something but you still want it right. to be to function as nicely as it looks you know it's you don't want some ornate thing and then it'd be like well <laughs> the action is terrible on it and it's super inaccurate like it's just a a polished turd you know well, you never know. I mean, your man in Guam, your man in yeah. Guam might need something with that <laughs> giant ego. I mean, yeah, I have that strapped need... to his back and have a crossbow across his chest. 
dude, you know he needs something else. <laughs> you know that he needs something else. He's in the, that dude in Guam is just like, Charlie did a good job, but it isn't enough. I need more. <laughs> we all need more, guys. And I want to thank you, Charlie, for coming on the podcast. I love your Higos. I know Sunset loves your Higos. I know everyone <laughs> loves your Higos. Everybody loves the folders and your and your beautiful chef knives. Everybody, go follow Charles Lionheart. I love I love calling you Charlie Lionheart. Yeah. That's one of my favorite names. But now the Duk Duk King might be the thing. I might if I might name this the Duk Duk King if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I I was kind of expecting you to to label the episode that with what you said last week, calling me the Duk 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 King. I'm calling you. This episode is going to be Charlie Lionheart, the Duk Duk King, and I'm glad. I'm grateful that you're here, guys. Go follow Charles Lionheart on Instagram. Go f- see what he's doing. If you want to buy one of his knives, he's got an Etsy page. I think once in a while he puts something up. Keep your eyes open because uh, I haven't, I haven't I, put anything on there in a long time. <laughs> all right, well then don't go to his. Don't go to his. Then don't do it. Then just whatever he says, you go follow him on Instagram, and, and I'm going to have to sneak into his DMs to try to get him to crack his books open a hair because i might not be able to wait but you know yeah. i i, I i'll, I'll make an exception for you jeff listen to that you see that ladies and germs you see that that's called power it's called juice. <laughs> juice and you guys got juice too i want you guys to go follow charlie and i want you to go also go to axe wax go get yourself some axe wax knife to, uh, I can't <laughs> saying that it's i got too got too many we're craig we're selling too much stuff here we're selling too much stuff Go to axwax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, get yourself 10% off on a couple of pugs of Axwax. Next week, if you're listening to this, Abe, you're going to have to send me a fruit basket at some point. I got all your guys on this podcast. <laughs> I had Nick, I had Salem, I have Charlie, and next week, Nanda Knives. Nick Anderson's going to be here. He's another one of these just awesome knife makers. He makes extraordinary uh damascus and he's a great guy he's has a rich history in asia that i want to know all about so next week we're going to have uh nanda knives who else we got coming on we have also we got we got we got chris zepp's going to be here chris zepp's coming down the pipe and then um you know ben snur is coming back from uh, arizona he's going to be coming back and i got a few other guys i'm just trying to remember but fine <laughs> we're all squared away guys go every if it's friday the full blast podcast is here and thank you for all your support uh guys keep doing me a favor and go on itunes wherever you leave and leave a review and leave me a good review it helps me very much and we're going to see you next week with nick anderson charlie the duck duck king thank you so much thank you jeff it's 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 been a blast there you go that's it i'm with you see you next week bye if you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.